on this episode of Dig Me Out. It's weird, on a lot of levels, and uh, it's really inconsistent. The playing is all over the place. It's really strange. But, it, I mean, it's, it's I guess it's in time. But this album sounds like they want to do 70s rock, but they really don't want to commit to it. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Nichi, joined once again by my co-host, Jay Ziak. Jay, how are you this evening? Pretty good. Uh, A little conflicted. You're conflicted? Uh-oh. A little bit. I'm missing uh, <clears throat> American Idol tonight and the Indians Red Sox to do this episode. You know, we, we could have postponed because I know you're a big American Idol fan. And uh, I don't want you to miss... Is it the... I, I'm, D, I'm DVRing it. Okay. In the, well, and yeah. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid reading Twitter after the show so that I can watch it on DVR. And you could DVR both, actually. And you're, and you're all right. Yeah, I'm not... Watching sporting events on DVR is kind of weird. Although I consider American Idol a sporting event. It is. I sure should don't watch it for the music. It's, it is truly the, the new American sport. You could somehow combine it with timed eating and um, shooting stuff. I like it. And tonight, we will be reviewing... This is an interesting one. We're going to review Urge Overkill's Supersonic Storybook from 1991. Now, Jay, I have to ask you... Um, have you ever listened to anything before Saturation came out? Anything? No. No? Nope. Saturation, Exit the Dragon. Which was the follow-up. Yeah. The new album. Are the three Urge Overkill albums I had. So you've heard the new one? Yeah. Just quickly, what did you think of it? Uh, I think it's really good. I think it's probably the best thing they've done since Saturation. It's funny. I think it sort of follows in what... All their albums kind of are, from what I've listened to, in that it starts out really strong, and I sort of lose interest about halfway through. <laughs> halfway through, actually, Saturation is not that way. I, I do like some of the songs in the second half of that record, yeah. um, but there's definitely some weaker material on the new one and Exit the Dragon, especially. Although I, I think that's a pretty album all the way through, but we'll get to that eventually. This time, we're going to go with the album that came out before Saturation, uh, the Supersonic Storybook. And I'll give a little brief history. I don't want to get too bogged down with history. Urge Overkill's formed in uh, Chicago, Illinois in uh, 1986. Originally, it was Nash Cato on vocals and guitar, Eddie King Roser on Vox, Vox. vocals, guitar, and bass. They met at Northwestern University. And they went through a lot of drummers before Black Eonassis, who's been the main drummer, uh, joined the band. They recorded an EP for Ruthless Records in 86. And do you know who was the uh, engineer on that EP? Steve Albini. Correct. Reason why? He was Nash Cato's roommate. I'm getting good at this. You are. Pretty much if you guess Steve Albini, you're going to hit 50% of the time on the record we review. Records we review. That's a good tip. Uh, they released Jesus Urge Superstar in 1989 on Touch and Go Records. And then in 1990, the following year, 
they released Americruiser, also on Touch and Go, and that was produced by Butch Vig, who uh, went, went on later to start and then play in the band Garbage. And they had a minor college hit with the song Ticket to L.A. 91 is when Supersonic Storybook came out. And this sort of starts the, the run for Urge Overkill becoming an anti-indie band and trying to, like, join the masses, I guess you would say. Uh, Touch and Go was mainly known for bands like the Jesus Lizard, Butthole Surfers, Big Black, noise bands, essentially. And that's what Urge Overkill started, started out as, but not this record. Supersonic Storybook saw them take on a much different sound, which we'll get into. Um, and this is when Black Eonassis joined on drums. They released the Stull EP on Touch and Go in 92, which featured the cover Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon by Neil Diamond, uh, which later ended up on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Uh, 93, they signed to Geffen, and Saturation, Saturation was released. Sister Havana uh, charted, but not very high, on modern rock and mainstream radio. And then 94 is when Pulp Fiction came out, so they kind of got an extra boost from the song on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. 95, Exit the Dragon comes out. The Break was the single, that flopped too. The tour ended up... Um, Ending early because Guided by Voices got kicked off the tour, and then drummer Blackie Onassis was arrested on drug charges. Uh, the band retreated back to Chicago. Cato and Roser uh, got into a fight. King Roser left the band. He formed the band Lime with Jim Kimball of the Jesus Lizard, and then formed a new band, Electric Airlines, with his brother John. Cato keeps the band going. The band switches from Geffen, Geffen to 500 Music and replaces Roser with Niles St. Cyr. And it doesn't do anything. The band is dropped from the label, splits up. Nash Cato puts out a solo record um, called Debutante in 2000 on Will Records. I remember that album, but I don't remember any of the songs. Like, and Was that when he like, played the Treehouse and toured solo? And yeah. Kind of a mess. Kind of a mess. Uh, 2004, Cato and Roser reunite with Gaza Strippers guitar player Mike Hodgkiss on bass and a new keyboard player and drummer. Uh, the drummer then was replaced by Cherry Valance drummer Brian Quast. And that is the lineup that is uh, together for Rock and Roll Submarine, which was self-released by the band. So that pretty much covers the history of Urge Overkill. Jay. Yes. Who knew of Urge Overkill? This is not a band we were unfamiliar with. Knowing what you knew, what did you think of the Supersonic Storybook? Well, I'm not a... Maybe you could say the same thing. I wouldn't call myself a huge Urge Overkill fan. I'm a, I am a fan, probably more of a casual fan. Yeah. Um, I like Saturation. Obviously, there's some things on Exit the Dragon that are okay, and then that Neil Diamond covers good and I f I'm intrigued by them um, but in general you know my feeling on them is they're kind of weird um, <laughs> and very inconsistent and this album minimizes that really well um, it's it's weird on a lot of levels 
and uh, it's really inconsistent. Um, it starts off great, like you said, kind of, kind of. I think you're spot on with the new album, in that it's the same way. So you know, tracks one through three, I think are really strong in terms of uh, you know songwriting and what they're trying to do, which is kind of re reinvent or read it's at this point sort of re uh, be influenced by 70s you know hard rock which a lot of bands at that time early 90s it was not cool to be you know kind of aping 70s hard rock so they were doing something pretty unique and i think you said it was kind of a anti-indie a conscious anti-indie image move and shift in their music and, th and that comes through in this the thing that makes it weird and a couple things. First off is the songwriting. The way they write songs is very odd. I, I would say Sister Vanna is one of the one of the, one of the exceptions where it's it's pretty tight and it's pretty coherent. How and you can kind of as you hear it hear how they how the song came about and how it all flows together. This album and, and some of their other albums parts just kind of happen and they kind of layer in guitars from all over the place. Like they're not consistently, you know, one guitar is always paying left and one guitar is always paying right and one stops playing and the other one comes on. It's like a car guitar will come on in the middle and then one will come on on the left side and then two will play and then they'll both stop. And then, and these parts kind of like layer on top of each other, one after the other in a sort of, it's an interesting method because it makes it kind of unpredictable. So there's like kind of all of these like hooks and riffs and progressions that kind of you know kind of come one after the uh, after the next um and it's sort of a different unconventional way and then the production of this album is so weird like it's, it's absolutely dry like there is no reverb on this at all which in some on in some areas it really works well especially if you've got it cranked and in other areas it's just odd sounding because um everything's very separated particularly the drums, which not only do those, do the drums sound odd because they're so dry and so separated from the rest of the music at times, the performance sounds weird. Like it almost sounds like this was the first, like the guy just learned the songs like the day before they recorded or the drums were put on after. The playing is all over the place. It's really strange, but it, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's in time kind of, but it's, yeah, it's like, it, yeah, it's all over the place and it just doesn't sound like the guy quite has got the songs down. And in some parts, it kind of, some parts of this album, it kind of works. And in another parts, you're like, oh my God, this, <laughs> this sounds like a mess. And then they'll kind of snap it together and everything will lock back up again. And uh, it just, it's, it's strange on many levels. And even the way that, like, I think one of the most, probably the most brilliant things about this record is just the guitar playing in general. So as the album goes on, you get the first three or four songs, which are probably the most pop-oriented, at least coherent and well put together. Then they start, like, the songs get longer and they get more jammy and more strange and storytelling and all kinds of weird stuff's going on. But what's read through the whole thing is this, this guitar playing that is... It's um, hard to imagine that he would be able to play these parts the same way twice. Like, he kind of, like, these the riffs are kind of sloppy, but kind of clever sloppy at the same time. Like, they make sense, but they don't sound like he's purposely doing all the things he's doing. 
this sound like accidents. This is the, the thing that, you know, you, during the Seaweed podcast, you said, you imagine that if the Afghan wigs picked up Testament's gear in the studio and started playing, mm-hmm. sound like Seaweed. That Was that mm-hmm. what you said? Yeah. I sort of was thinking along those lines. To me, this sounds like if Pavement or Guided by Voices, one of those like lo-fi, like sloppy 90s indie rock bands, went in where Kiss was recording. <laughs> That's what this sounds like to me. This sounds like a band that wants to do 70s rock, but is, and this is the term that came up when I was researching the band, ironic detachment. Hmm. At, they're, they're too focused on the image of being above it all that they can't ever really lock in. And maybe they do on saturation, and that, maybe that's why that album works so well. And you get songs like Sister Havana and Positive Bleeding and um, Tequila Sunday. And those songs, you know, start to finish, they all work, and that album works. Yep. And maybe they hadn't figured that out yet. But this album sounds like they want to do 70s rock, but they really don't want to commit to it. Because it's right. cool. And what it actually ended up sort of... Or they don't know how to do it. Yeah, they don't know how to do it. What it sort of ended up reminding me of, or reminding me mostly of, was... Some of those like 70s rock bands that they would have one killer single mm-hmm. on the album and the rest of it is like a lot of like weird jamming and yep. uh, like bands like Cactus, they have that great song Evil, which is a mm-hmm. kick-ass riff and you're like, oh man, I can't wait to hear the rest of this record. And then you hear the rest of the record and you're like, it sounds nothing like that song. Yeah. And Free is like that because Free, you know, everybody knows all right now. Well, go listen to another free album. It doesn't sound anything like that, like that song. <laughs> Trust you, you've done it. Trust me, I've done it. I've been through the free catalog, all the odds and sods, and there's no other all right now. Um, it's a <laughs> lot of jamming, a lot of blues jamming, and I think a lot of their jamming comes from the fact that um, one, they were a noise rock band, and they could just make noise on stage for you know a half hour if they wanted to. With the previous incarnation of the band, also. Um, the name Urge Overkill comes from a lyric in a Funkadelic song. And if you listen to songs like Bionic Revolution and... Oh, that sounds horrible. But it's got a funk element to it. No, I know. That's why it's, it's terrible it's... because it's like, I don't want to listen to Cheap Trick do funk. And right. this band is basically trying to pull off and it's, it's awful. Well, the moments they sound the best is when they're aping, not aping, when when they sound like they're trying to be ZZ Top. Yeah. But like, uh, in my notes here, I have track three. There's definitely some elements. 
with uh, I don't know which which guy has the deep deeper voice. I, I believe that's Nash Cato. When he sings, it definitely starts to get like a Billy Gibbons, even the way he plays guitar and the mixing with that voice. You're like, oh wow, this is kind of like easy top ish. So entering Mark, it's, Mark Lanigan territory. Yeah, and, there, and it's just for moments, you know. It, it's not the like with anything with anything with this album. I think all the points we've made none of the problem is is none of it is sustained no so like I, even through the first three tracks which are you know, probably the strongest for me it's really moments within those tracks where things come together and it sort of light goes on and it sounds it sounds like something it sounds like them and uh and all the pieces fit together but immediately it's sort of like within a couple seconds falls apart again yeah. <laughs> into something else I will say that I, I did like track four, Emmeline. Um, uh, yeah. In an EP, and that had been the fourth song in the EP. Yep. It would have been fine. I found out later that that's actually a cover of a by a band oh, yeah. called Hot Chocolate, um, which was a, like a 60s or 70s soul band. For me, when I got to that song in the album, I started thinking, "Oh, here we go. This is where it falls apart," you know, like most of their albums do. And uh, that song, sort I think, because probably the quality of songwriting's there, it held together. So I, I got optimistic, and then by the time we got to, you know, I think five is Bionic Revolution. Yeah, that's where it falls apart. And then literally everything after that, I wrote, "What the." F- stupid pointless <laughs> i think there's some there is if you listen to it those tracks again particularly the last song which kind of has a dinosaur jr theme from navajo yeah yeah that's a it, good uh, reference it, it does have a dinosaur jr feel to it and um i think there's there is definitely some, some cool guitar stuff going on um through all of those songs you just you kind of make it through them and you know but the the, the main focus here is, is the first half for sure yeah and it's only nine song album right yeah it's only nine songs i so i mean half of it's good <laughs> what did you think about on the first one on, on the first track kids the kids are insane i really yeah. liked when they brought in the organ and i was like "Ooh, this is gonna get cool yeah and then it goes to like a spoken word part and i was like I'm not sure that this works in here it's I like that it would normally go ahead I, it, like they have such great setups and then they do something to ruin the song on almost yeah. every track. You wanna get your hands on a piece of the pie. 
I kind of uh, maybe because I like his voice so much, it didn't bother me as much as it normally would when it came in. I was I mean, expecting I in the Incredible general, Lance Diamond to show up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I w- I'm not gonna say I loved it. It didn't kill the song for me, but I, I could have done without it. But uh, I definitely like I like his voice a lot, and I think when he sings or they both sing together is when you know at least vocally is when something special happens and when they become urge overkill unfortunately that doesn't happen very much in this album it's sort of hit and miss when when those moments happen they needed a really strong songwriter in this band to guide it and i don't think either of these guys are particularly song strong songwriters they have producer what or a producer producer probably would help well i mean they had you know they worked with steve albini they worked with butch vig I don't know who was the producer on this record. I don't know if there's anybody of note. But I think if they just had somebody, you know, guiding it, just a little bit, just needed to be a little bit tweaked. And that's really what you get with the next record on Saturation. Is you get the, the things that are good about the Kids Are Insane, The Candidate, yep. Today is Blackie's Birthday. They're able to remove that little bit of dumbness mm-hmm. that makes you go, eh. And they, and they, focus in and the playing is tight like like on the candidate i re- the thing that just drove me insane about that was how bad the drums were i mean they're just all <laughs> over the place kind of funny i would like to hear that i bet there's a story for why they that performance is like that i mean you're saying that this is the first album that this drummer played on and boy it sounds an awful lot like maybe they recorded this album with somebody else and then took his tracks out and had had the other guy the overdub drums on top drums on top or something it wouldn't surprise it's me. really strange strange performance <laughs> yeah so I, I think that really that covers everything but I think track three is really, really fun song. I bet that, yeah. I bet that was a great song live, especially seeing them in Chicago at the time. I bet that people had a lot of fun with that song. That anymore though, because Bucky's not in the band anymore. Yeah. Um, but I'm just picture myself at that, you know, when they, this album came out or when they were playing these songs, thinking that uh, that's that was probably a highlight of the song.
why wasn't, and we'll, we'll probably get into this again with with um, saturation at some point, even uh, Exit the Dragon. What didn't the what didn't connect with people on this? Why wasn't I mean this record, as far as I know, never hit mainstream radio. And I think I think maybe that's actually kind of obvious when you listen to this. Why it wasn't a mainstream hit in 1991? I mean, this is even before Nirvana hit. Uh, and this doesn't fit in with anything that's going on in 91. No. I mean, regardless of the quality of it now, if you put yourself in 1991, I mean, it's not like it's not like the the uh, hair metal hard rock that was exiting, and it's not like the Seattle grunge stuff that was coming in. So it. it are having you know, really happening right then, so it, it really didn't fit at all. Yeah, and it's not particularly a great record, so it's probably best that a lot of people didn't discover this, because really it's a great EP. If you take the first four songs, maybe throw in one bonus track, but as an album, it's, it's not it's not all there. Well, I think there's, I, I do think that there's some real talent, especially with the guitar playing on this, and some real. Even in the, some of the songwriting pieces, there's some real moments of genius. I, I think that this band, though, in general, if you just talk about you know, why why didn't they connect, I think when they did, it was when somebody probably produced them, grabbed a hold of them, and kind of reined them in. Mm-hmm. I think uh, overall, though, they're probably uh, a, the kind of band that sabotaged themselves in terms of being way overly indulgent and just going on tangents and exploring weird other kinds of music and trying to incorporate that and never really being uh, you know one of the things that makes great bands great is they can kind of stand back and say this is what we do really well and we're just going to keep doing that <laughs> and uh, unfortunately they were I think maybe that's yeah, I think that they may be realizing that now. I think that's what they were trying to do on the new album, but it's kind of too late. Yeah, they were an al- they were at least an album away from figuring that out. So makes sense. All right, I think that about wraps everything up on Urge Overkill's the Supersonic Storybook. I almost got that wrong right after we reviewed it. Jay, thanks again for joining me, and please make sure to head on over to the website to click through all of our links and head on over to our iTunes page to leave us nice words of feedback. And we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.